happen. So today I'm talking to John Lawler, who is the Marina Director at Empire Marina Bobbin Head, which is um, what's our marina, which is ours. Yeah, it's our marina and we're very proud of this marina, um, incredibly proud and we're also very grateful to have John who is always part of our family So, because he's been here so long and he genuinely cares about this business in a way that an owner would. So welcome, John. It's lovely to talk to you. Thank you, Nikki. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. We love having you here, I have to say. Um, so we're going to talk about your career, your childhood, all those wonderful things. Yeah. Um, well, I'm pretty old now, so I've got a, a, a lots of stories to tell. <laughs> That's true. And your your mere 100,000 nautical miles might come into it as well, all those incredible sailing trips that you've done and oh, races. It's, it's and the sunspots and wrinkles. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, John, tell me, let's step back a long way into your, I shouldn't say a long way, should I? That's a bit rude. It is a long way now. (laughs) (laughs) Into your childhood. When did you, did you have a first memory of being on a boat? Not a first memory. I remember um, I started very young. I was probably about four. Um, the first time I went sailing with my father, he had a little boat down in Sydney Harbour. Um, we used to sail out of the Sydney Amateur Sailing Club. And uh, of the four children, I was sort of the only one that was interested in, in boats. Um, so it was every Saturday, me and Dad and his mates uh, down uh, racing. And I think it was only a fairly small boat, 21, 22 feet or something like that, but it had s- small sails and I think pretty much I could pack a spinnaker and do things like that before I could write, you know, before I went to school. Wow. Uh, um, the bug bit me then, you know. I knew that's, that's what it was. But it was also hanging out with that. Um, what he was doing was more interesting than what mum and the other kids were doing, uh, which was usually go and visit my grandparents on the other side of the family, which I never um, sort of clicked too much with that side of the family. It was just dad, boats. Um, it was just much, much more interesting doing what he was doing. And then I... Probably didn't miss a Saturday. I was sort of the one of the ones that didn't bother going to my mates' birthday parties and things like that. I sort of rather go sailing with Dad. So I used to play football and rugby on Saturday mornings and then, um, you know, Dad would take me to that. Then we'd go off to the boat sailing for the afternoon. So that was sort of my weekends as a young young kid. But um, all memories were good. You know, they were very good memories. Yeah. Um, and very lucky to have that dimension to our life, you know, of having a boat. You know, so we didn't have a, a lot of money. It was a very modest thing. Mum and Dad were young, buying houses and all that sort of thing. So, um, you know, I consider myself very lucky that we were exposed to that at, at such a young age. I think it is um, a lovely way of um, spending time together as parent and child as well, boating. Yeah, it is because there's – I picked up a lot from Dad and I used to, um, you know, I remember he used to sort of say that, I didn't talk much, you know, I used to sort of sit there and just listen and take it all in. But then I would go home that night and relay everything to mum of what dad said during the day, you know, whether he swore or, you know, dad said a rude word today and all that sort of thing. So he learned pretty quickly to sort of be careful what he said in front of me because it would all get back to mum. But it was only because I was excited of telling her what I'd been up to for the day, you know, 
uh, with, with Dad and his mates. And that's pretty exciting for a mum, for a boy to actually talk to her. <laughs> <laughs> well, as she said, and as you know, Nick, I'm, I'm a man of few words. I've always been the same. I haven't been sort of, you know, um, you know, I'm not very vocal. A lot going on inside, but as I say, it doesn't all all, all, all come out. Sometimes, you know, you better keep a lot of things to yourself <laughs> and, and think it. <laughs> so, in terms of transitioning from that boating childhood and being brought up with boats to actually being involved with boats at a work level. How did that happen? Yeah, it was an interesting story. Um, go back a little bit. My father was a ship shipbuilder, uh, worked for an American shipping company where they used to oversee, uh, he was a marine surveyor, and he used to oversee the building of, of big ships and oil rigs and stuff like that. And it was an American company that he worked for in Sydney. Um, and then when it was in about 1977, I would have been 13. We as a family were moved um, overseas to Karachi, Pakistan. Um, so the, my older brother didn't go. He was too close to finishing school. Um, but my older sister, myself and my younger brother, we all went to Karachi and um, went to the Karachi American School. Wow, that um, would have been a big transition for a child of your age. It was from someone from, you know, Northern Beaches, Manly, uh, to go to Pakistan. Um, it was uh, very different. But as a family, and we still talk about it, it was sort of you know one of the best periods of our life. We were there for four years uh, in, in the end. But the um, so that's where I was, and then uh, it was in about 1979. Um, we were very active. Well, Dad was very active in the Karachi Yacht Club, so we you know continued our sailing over there just in in small boats. And it was uh, one day he brought these two guys on this boat sailed into Karachi, which wasn't a, a destination for yachts or yachting or anything like that. It was very much a, you know, very poor country with just a very industrial, dirty old port. Um, there was a boat that came in. I remember it was a Swan Swan 48 sailing boat. These two guys were delivering from Europe um, down the Red Sea and they were take, supposed to take the boat to Kuwait. Um, but it was right at the time in 1979 when um, the revolution happened in Iran and the, the Shah of Iran was deposed and the, they uh, stormed the American embassy and took um, all the hostages there. So this boat decided that it's probably not a great place to take this sailing boat in. So they pulled into Karachi and my dad, as he did, uh, befriended these two guys and um, he introduced, brought them home, introduced them to us and there were a couple of American guys, so John Asenhurst and Arca and... Dad was sort of explaining that these guys get paid to to sail these boats and sort of my eyes lit up and I would have been <laughs> about 15 at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, that these guys sail for a living, that people pay them to sail and I just like never heard of such a thing. So pretty much then and there, that's what I was going to do. Wow. Um, <clears throat> but luckily, and, and luckily I listened, but he sort of advised that both these guys, they both had other other trades. One was a very um, accomplished photographer and mm -hmm. the other guy was a dentist mm -hmm. um, and they just sort of left their careers and they went off and, and did this thing. So they all had something to fall fall back on. I was never sort of university material. Um, I could have gone if, if, if I'd applied myself. But, you know, Dad's sort of said and then the last two years of school I sort of tailored my school subjects towards the more practical, you know, electronics, woodworking, metalwork and all that sort of thing that I could use you know, on, on boats as opposed to studying chemistry or, or algebra. <clears throat> so 
So that was sort of when I got the idea, when I was sort of quite quite young, 15, 16. We then, after Pakistan, we moved to moved to Singapore. So I did my last year of school in, in Singapore, American school. Why did you move to Singapore? Just the contract that Dad had. That's where his company told him to go. So I continued sailing more in, in Singapore, but then got more into a bit more of ocean racing. There was a little sort of ocean racing scene at the Changi Sailing Club. And then pretty much after school, I wasn't going to university, but I wanted to go sailing, so I went straight to Florida. Parents weren't too happy about it because they didn't know where I was going or what I was doing, but went, yeah. went to Florida and, and jumped on some uh, racing boats. So I did at the time, there was the Southern Ocean Racing Conference on boats between sort of 50 up to maxi boats, you know, 80 feet. How old were you then? Uh, would have been 18, half Okay, and that was before Life 360. So when your child goes to Florida from Singapore, that's a bit scary for your parents. I yeah. Get that. Yeah. Well, they were still in Singapore too, so they stayed there for another five or six years after after we all left. So I did that and then I was sort of, I was getting paid but not much um, and we were pretty good, we were pretty good sailors and teams and the, the boats that I got onto. So it was at a very high standard level. And you were being paid to sail on those yeah. or yeah. and and what role did you have on those boats? I, I was being paid. It wasn't enough. It was just sort of your beer and, you know, you, they gave you accommodation and um, bits and the, the, the pay was pocket money. Yeah. Um, really just so you could sort of eat and have a few beers. They were all, as I say, racing boats. Some were American, uh, some were British around, but it was, there was just a sort of a band of gypsies. Um, we used to call ourselves, you know, you probably need to, uh, no, I won't go there. Um, <laughs> not politically correct anymore. Not politically correct It was anymore. in the 70s, but it isn't now. It was. For those that listen that know, they'll, talk, they'll know I'm talking about the IBNA. Um, and that was sort of a bunch of just a very informal thing. So as we'd go to regatta, see, in those days the boats were of a, of a standard that you would sail from regatta to regatta. These days they dismantle and put them on a ship and the ship takes them there. Oh, okay. So that's where I got a lot of miles. Um, so we'd, you know, do three, four transatlantics a year up to the Caribbean, uh, you know, through Panama, out to Hawaii. But the racing boats, they would all sort of, they'd had to have two modes where they were sort of on delivery mode. So you would take all the racing gear off it, put all the cruising gear and the pots and pans and everything back on yeah. board. All the sailing, the racing stuff would go into a shipping container and that would go by ship and meet us in the next port. So then there would be three, four or five of us who would then sail the boat. To, the, to where the next regatta was. And then on the maxis, then, you know, um, up to sort of 24, 25 people would come in um, and, and join us, join the, join the core crew. But that's and when, what, you, when you say maxi, um, can you just explain what that means to the listeners? Um, boats, that, to, to make them somewhat level, even though they're all different, different sizes and shapes, the, the different measurements apply to them. And then there's a rule and a very complicated formula that goes through and then they end up with a rating. So it allows a 40-foot boat to race competitively against a 60-foot boat with a time allowance thing based on certain measurements on the boat and weight and sail area and all that sort of thing. Maxis, so the maximum in those days was 70 feet. So even though the boat was 80 feet long, according to the rule, they'd be 70 feet. So a maxi was right at 70 feet. So it was the biggest you could kind of get right within, within that rule. Hence that term, maxi. Yeah. 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 Did that for quite a few years and then realised that I, I could see that I did need a trade. I did need something else. It wasn't enough to just be a good sailor. Mm. Um, I was pretty good. But on these deliveries and stuff like that, you need a lot of, you know, engineering experience and that sort of thing. So old dad's uh, 
advice started ringing in my head that I need to get a trade of some sort as well. So I came back to Sydney um, and then got a, an apprenticeship um, with a company called Carini Yachts in Harbord in Sydney mm-hmm. um, as, a, as a shipwright. And we were building a lot of the Adams 10s, Adams 44s. Um, Paul Kelly, who owned the company, was a, a very, very clever fella. So we did that with, with him. And then the last year of my apprenticeship, I went and worked for McConaughey Boats, did finish there and then went back to work for Paul. Then we built, again, another maxi, Sovereign, which was for a guy called uh, Bernard Lewis and sailed on her for a while, you know, about 18 months around Sydney, just working it up. Went back to McConaughey's where we were working on Windward Passage 2, um, did the build on that. And then it was about that time I sailed on both of them as as uh, as crew. I was sort of the bowman on Sovereign. I was sort of mid-bowman on, on um, Windward Passage. But then it started to get very sort of commercial, you know, sponsored and sponsorships where they started wanting you to wear logos and things on your shirt. And I didn't, that really wasn't, wasn't me. Um, the personalities also, once you get up to that level, they're, they're, um, the personalities are also quite strong, Yep. Uh, very driven. And while I was probably at the same skill level, um, I just didn't like all the egos and things that, that went with it. So when you say got up to that level, what, what racing are they doing? Obviously Sydney Hobarts, but then we used to do, in those days there was a regatta called the Southern Cross Cup where countries from all over the world, would, there was like teams, they would bring three boats from England three boats from Hong Kong, three boats from Sydney, three from Singapore, and they would come and then have a regatta in Sydney just before Christmas and then it would culminate in the Sydney Hobart race. So it was a sort of a team's event, very similar to what the Admiral's Cup is, was in England. Yeah. Um, same thing, to an international, so countries you know, with a three-boat team. Um, that doesn't happen now, does it? No. No. Not as a team. Yeah. Um, they still try and keep the regattas going, but it's not not as teams, which is unfortunate. Yeah, um, it, it's unfortunate, but it's a very expensive way to do it. Yeah, is that, and that's what deterred it, stopped much. it happening, basically. Yeah, pretty much. So I was still sailing, and it was on. I remember it was um, on the Australia Day long weekend, um, nineteen eighty eight bicentenary, and we were. I was out with Dad on his boat. He used to have a little SNS thirty four at the time called um, Morning Tide. And we were sailing down the harbour when all the tall ships were coming through and he pointed out one boat. There was this beautiful big three-masted schooner called Aquarius. Um, it was the only private tall ship in the, in the whole fleet, I suppose. Yeah. I was living in Queensland at the time, working at the Southport Yacht Club, re- rebuilding boats. So I'd just come down for that weekend for the party. And then Dad pointed this boat out and he said, oh, you know, I've done some work on that boat with his uh, work. He'd done some surveying on this, on this boat. And uh, I'll probably get your job on there. Oh, the old, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah. Well, I sort of rolled my eyes and said, yeah, sure. You know, (laughs) I think it was sort of way past me because I say Aquarius was, um, she was 180 feet long. Wow. You know, just a uh, three-master but privately owned um, thing and just immaculate, like a brand new thing, even though it was 60 years old at the time. Gosh. We went home. The next day Dad went to work and he, Obviously, did up a, a CV for me, and he came home that night and just said, "You know, sign here." <laughs> and I saw it was a CV, and I thought, "Oh yeah, sure." Um, but anyway, my girlfriend and I at the time we just jumped in the car and we drove back to Queensland. So he, while we were driving back to the Gold Coast, so literally when I got there, the phone was ringing, 
and um, it was the captain of Aquarius, uh, Fred Doverston. And um, he said, oh, you know, Dad dropped your CV. You know, we've just done our commitments in Australia. Now we're heading back to Europe. Do you want to come? And I said, oh, when are you going? He said, oh, I've got three days. Oh, <laughs> plenty of notice then. <laughs> plenty of notice. So I said, yeah, I'll be there. So I put the phone down and went and broke the news to my girlfriend, very long-standing girlfriend. Oh. See ya. I'm out, oh, I'm out of here. But when we get to Europe, you can come over and all that sort of thing. Um, she was sort of understanding. <laughs> <laughs> but I also didn't have a passport. Ah. So and uh, to go that so then one of dad's friends uh, so I needed to get a passport in two days and this was sort of you know prior to internet and all those sorts of things yeah um it was all very much manually so whatever a friend of my dad's pulled some strings I ended up getting a passport in two days gosh and then uh so I went and joined the ship she was um, birthed at Birkenhead Point yeah uh, it was the first time I'd sort of first time I'd been on board it I'd seen it a couple of days before but then we took off um Heading back to Europe. And how long did that trip take? We went from Sydney all the way around to Perth nonstop. Then we came out of the water uh, in Perth for about a month just to do a refit and, and general painting. Then we set off to go and we were, we were going to Greece. Oh, sounds terrible. Essentially uh, was, the, was the stop. Well, that's where the owner wanted to see the boat next. Yep. So we went from Perth to Port Suez um, pretty much nonstop. So I think it was I think it was about um, fifty days. Wow! Let's see, twelve crew. You know, there's a lot of crew. Um, big boat, so it was pretty pretty comfortable. Um, we did stop for twelve hours, I think, in the Maldives, purely because we ran into them. Um, so they were just on our course, and you know, if you're going through, you might as well stop. Sure. Um, but we didn't hang around there for very long. It was just to stop, have a swim, and go ashore and have a beer, and then back on the boat, and then back to uh, through up the Red Sea, through the Suez Canal, went to Greece. Um, but that was yeah, fifty days was probably the longest, longest trip I've done, which was enough, enough. Yeah, yeah. And then you know did did that so I stayed with Aquarius in Greece, and then as I said, she was a private yacht, didn't do any chartering and stuff like that. But the owner was this German fellow, and uh, he was he was very German. He would use the boat forty days a year, not thirty nine, not forty one. He was yeah. just that's that's what he what he did. The rest of the time of the year, we would just Polish it, paint it, um, polish it and paint it again, you know. Gosh, so 325 days of the year you were just looking after her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very much a – so we'd go to places for for months on end, you know, say um, six months, it would go four or five months where we wouldn't leave the dock. Yeah. All the crew, we kept all the crew, all the um, 15 crew. We'd all sort of move ashore and get apartments. It was just an eight to five, five-day-a-week job. In pretty cool places. They never sent you to, you know, horrible places. So you were in no. Greece and Italy and Spain. And um, so those forty days were mixed up over different countries, or how did he yeah. do that? He would ask for, you know, what do we do? What What do I want to do? Um, and you know, so, I don't know what you want to do. What do you want to do? And he said, I don't know. Because <laughs> um, later on, on Aquarius, so I joined Aquarius as a deckhand, yes. and then worked um, up. Then I became her bosun. Um, which was in charge of all the sort of anything you see from the outside, all the rigging and, and all that sort of thing, as opposed to the engineering or the interior of the uh, cabins and stuff. Um, and then I did that a oh, couple of years. It was there. It was a sort of a promotion, which didn't didn't take me that long. Then I needed some more 
uh, education. So I'd had most of the shipwright now, but then, as I say, I thought, you know, well, I want to do this, so then I've got to go and get captain's licences and things like that. So I came back to Sydney, did my Master 5 here at Brookvale uh, TAFE, then went, back to, then went back to the boat. But then I was sort of getting... How, do, how long does the Master 5 take, take you to do? Uh, in those days it was about three months. Okay. Three months full time. But you needed quite a lot of sea time to get it. Yeah. Um, you needed, I think, from memory, four years of sea time, documented sea time to be eligible. Yeah. Um, on commercial boats and on, on different passages and stuff like that. But um, You obviously had a lot of that. Plenty of that. Yeah. Plenty of that. Um, and it used to sort of annoy me a bit that the, the guy who used to sell ice creams in out of a tinny on Sydney Harbour on the weekends, that was sea time as well. So we had very different sea time, but that was acceptable because we'd been doing that for a couple of years mm. in a commercial tinny mm. um, compared to the stuff that I was doing. Mm. Um, but on paper, you know, we were, we were both equal. Um, so it was, you know, quite strange. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I started applying for jobs, you know, to be captain of my own boat. I ended up getting one on a boat called Twirly Bird. Um, it was probably my first one. So you'd got you were on Aquarius, yep. and you'd got to the level of what on Aquarius? Uh, bosun. Bosun. Can you explain what bosun means? Bosun. Or what that role entails? Everything on the exterior. So everything. So I had three masts. Three. Um, you know, so I think the masts were. I think they were 160 feet tall. Gosh. Um, so three. So I had three rigs to look after. Um, there was 11 sails on it. It was all very traditional, all by hand. So all the all the rope work and all the blocks and pulleys and stuff like that were all sort of traditional stuff. So in charge of all of that, that, wow. that it was maintained. As things broke, you fix them. Uh, you know, maintain things so they don't break. Um, if you tear a sail, you'll sew it up. The ship's boats um, responsible for them that they're all in working order and you know and good, you know, safe. But again, it's the standard and the level that they were at. You know, they weren't just little boats they were beautiful speed boats you know they were beautifully varnished and beautifully maintained and just sparkle and you know ready for the owner mm. um they were a huge 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 part of it but just of the five deck crew so you were sort of the boss of the five deck crew so i had sort of you know five people so who were doing the painting and varnishing you know religiously every friday whether we were at sea or tied up you know the whole boat would get washed um you know from the top to the bottom you know and it was a bit like, you know, washing an elephant with a toothbrush. You know, these things are so big and they're already clean, but, you know, you only washed it a week ago, but you just do it religiously. Yep. That's what we did on a Friday. Wow. Um, rain, hail or shine. Yeah. Even at sea, we would do that. Still, yeah. at, still at sea, they'd still get washed down. So I worked. So I went to Twirly Bird, which you may know was a uh, fellow Alan Bristow from Bristow Helicopters. Oh, yeah. Um, he was um, the owner there. He was an interesting Interesting fellow. Um, <laughs> Lots of boat owners are. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was. Uh, he used to remind me of Winston Churchill because they looked a bit the same and he always had the big cigar. Yeah. He would wait from the minute he'd wake up in the morning, he would start writing just he'd have these notepads, copious quantities of notepads, and he would just start writing things and he had this big old cigar in his mouth all the time, smoke going in his eyes are watering himself. Yes. What's that smell? And they're like, Bloody hell, you know, I can't, across the table I could barely see him from all the cigar smoke. <laughs> and he's, what's the, I can smell diesel. <laughs> and I usually took that as a hint that go away, I want to be left alone for a minute. So he'd sort yeah. of send you off to do a do a job. Yeah. But funny old boy. And the next one was a beautiful boat, one I'm very proud of, uh, a boat called Signy. 
um, which was a 115-foot cold-moulded timber thing built in the States, but it was uh, inspired by Hereshoff, so it was very low-wooded, fast, but just, you know, magnificent, magnificent boat. Um, didn't do too long on her because I was still in contact with Aquarius and they were down in South Africa. And um, Fred, the captain, again rang me up and just said, oh, we need a first mate when we get back to Europe. We'd be interested in that. Of course, you know, yes, again, it was so wild not being a captain but to be, you know, first mate. And I still had a lot to learn. I knew that I still didn't know a lot. You know, yeah. I, I, when I was 24, 25, thought I knew everything. As I got a bit older, 27, 28, I realised that I don't. Um, I've still got a lot to learn. Um, Fred, the, ca the captain, was, um, you know, an, an awesome resource to learn from. So we left Sydney. So when Aquarius got back to Mallorca, um, which was the, the, the base for the boat at the time, I, I rejoined her. And then it wasn't long. Fred had been on the boat uh, for about 12, 15 years as captain. And for whatever reason, he, not much, but he fell out with the owner and he was sort of sacked on, well, not quite sacked on the spot. He sort of pulled me into his cabin first. The owner sort of called me up, who I got on very well with. And I was, you know, 28. And he sort of said, I've had enough of, of, of Fred. Um, he's going today. If I offered you the job, would you take it? And I remember sort of saying <laughs> with both hands. Mm. And he said, right, go and get Fred. <laughs> <laughs> That's hard. And Fred and I were very close. And as I say, I was very, very grateful and everything to Fred. And Fred, um, you know, this boat was his life. Yeah. You know, as I say, he was very, you know, it was, it was very much part of him. And, and captains tend to take them on it as if they're theirs, don't they? Even though they're owned yeah. by somebody else, the yeah. captains really behave yeah. as if they're theirs, don't they? Look, for another podcast, the, the history of Aquarius is a very, very interesting one mm. um, as to what happened, which, you know, I haven't touched on at all yet, but that was a, a very old boat um, and, and it was almost a wreck but then rebuilt, resurrected by this owner. Mm. Um, and Fred was all part of that rebuild. So Fred was sort of with it again and so it was very much a part of him. But anyway, poor old Fred. Um, but Fred had a young family, so he just had um, had identical twin daughters born. And because we were moving around so much, he talked the owner into, you know, it was more this, the way of um, training me was that um, well, I'll go home and I'll let John take the boat to everywhere. So even his first mate, Fred, was the captain, but he used to fly home, fly back to Palmer uh, in Mallorca. And then I'd take the boat places um, and then he'd fly in with, with the owner. Um, so in the end, as the first mate, I was taking the boat everywhere. I was sort of the captain of it anyway. Um, and I think the owner sort of tweaked, well, why am I paying this guy to do that when he's not even there? Yeah. Um, he's not even being the captain. Um, so I think that then a few other little things happened. So the boss sort of had enough and, and after, you know, 12 years um, did that. So, so I was, yeah, I had to go and get Fred. Uh, Fred, uh, Chuck wants to see you. And he said, oh, Okay. Um, and I knew that you know <laughs> what was going to happen. Chopping block. Well, and I, you know, as I say, Fred was a was a, he was a friend, and he was yeah. wonderful to me. Um, mm. And I knew that, and I didn't, you know, I was asked, um, and he was going anyway. Mm. Um, it was not that I white handed him or took his job, but nah. but it did bother me that I knew a few minutes before he did. Mm, I can understand that. <laughs> and yeah. uh, sure enough, um, Fred came out of the office and he said, "Oh, I've just been fired." And I said, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he said, oh, well, 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 you know, congratulations. And he was very gracious, yeah. uh, very gracious to me. And, and uh, as I say, like, and 
running a big boat like that, um, you know, the boat handling, the navigation, the sails, the rigging and all that sort of thing, obviously very important and I was very good at. But then all of a sudden being as the captain, there's the administrative side. Yes. And I knew nothing about that. I had zero computer skills. In those days we were still using, you know, WordStar 2000, um, Lotus 123, of which all DOS programs and stuff like that, but I had no idea. Yeah. And um, so I had to learn that side of it. Paying the crew, um, the budget at those times, the budget was probably three or four million a year. Um, Gosh. And, and I, was, you know, I was only 28. And that um, was... So, yeah, that's how long ago it was. Wow. Well, well, that was in 1992 Ooh. or something like that. So this so is pre-internet. years ago. Yeah. <sighs> this is, um, and in those days um, it got all the more complicated because, you know, it was before the Eurozone. Yeah. So being in Italy we were using lira, then go to Spain and use pes- you know, pesetas and then oh, oh, up to France using francs and then all this sort of thing. Um, so transferring money around in those days, you know, as I say, there was no bank trend, you know, there was no internet yet. Yeah. Um, there was, you know, we were still using telex, um, telexes by Satcom. Then the great, uh, innovation became, you know, fax, facsimile, you know, so faxes came. Fax machine, yes. Um, so dealing with banks in the UK, you know, we were sort of our central bank was, you know, who used to, our bank accounts were in the UK, but moving around so much, it was, it was very, um, difficult for me to pick up because all of a sudden I had nothing to do with the outside of the boat. Yeah. It was all administrative, administrative, you know, hiring the crew, firing the crew, paying the crew. They'd all get paid in US dollars, but then working out how to pay them in lira, having the money there, um, all these sorts of things. But you know, we did it. That's the way it was. That's the way it was done in those days. So that presumably took you away from what you actually enjoyed doing on the boat. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it taught me, you know, a whole bunch of other skills, which you know I, I, I use today. Uh, you know, it was the uh, accounting side of it, the people side of it, um, the, you know, the main organising things, the maintenance side of it, and probably the ability to look months ahead. And that's sort of where my head was always at, was always months ahead. Yeah. Um, you know, we're going to get a refit. We need The boat needs painting. Um, you don't paint a thing like that. So it was, you know, six months ahead um, where you were sort of talking to shipyards and getting quotes for, for painting. Yes. Get the quote, then you've got to get the ship there. Yeah. Um, do all that sort of so every So you'd arrive in, let's say, Germany where we were doing some doing the refit. I'd kind of already done all the planning and all the... It was all done, so there was nothing really to do there. But I was on to the next one. Uh, you know, after we come out of the shipyard, where are we going to be? We're going to be in the Caribbean, or we're going to be in Seychelles, in the Indian Ocean. Um, do all the planning. So while we're in Germany, the boat's getting painted. I'm planning for the Seychelles, and you know, they said I tend to live, and I still do. Um, believe it or not, I still do live <laughs> <laughs> further ahead than where I am. You know, yeah. what I'm doing today isn't really what I'm concentrating on. You know, as I say, it's more down the road as to what's, you know, preventative maintenance and, you know. Oh, that's interesting to learn that about you. Trying to read the read the, read the the tea leaves as to what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, sometimes I get it right, sometimes I get it wrong. It can, you know, sometimes possibly with fellows like Darren, they sort of mm-hmm. see that it's, um, I bring in the problems. Yes. Um, the solutions I've got and I don't bother him with the solution, but I, he needs to know the problems. Darren being the owner of Empire Marina Bowen Head, by the way, with Andrew. Yeah. You know, if, if I'm doing something good, it's like I might not tell him. I mean, I'm sure I, I do. There are good bits of the job which I'll share with him too. But I mean, it's 
I'm always the one asking for money. Yeah. I'm always the one saying this is broken or the marina needs maintenance or I don't have the, the stuff that I do. I'm always bringing him the, the, the problems. Now, I've usually got a solution. I don't. That's one thing that the owner of Aquarius taught me very early on was, uh, you know, he was a, he was a busy man. Yeah, um, owners always want solutions. They don't want problems. Well, that was it. You know, I remember solutions. he told me yeah. in German, you know, I don't want your problems. I want the solutions to your problems. Yes. And I'm okay, got it. You yeah. Know? Um, and that's sort of what I do now. That's sort of, you yeah. know, one of the great things that I've, I've learned. Um, so I won't go to my bosses now with the problems. It's this is what we need to fix it. Yes. Um, I've already thought about all the, the ways and the, and the best ways to do it. Yeah. There is a proposal written somewhere in my chicken scratching writing and in my notes and all that sort of thing. I can back it all up. But, um, you know, what being a captain taught me that you can apply to, um, to to running marinas. So so to you, running a marina is very similar to running a ship, same, as it were. Same. Yeah, same. very similar. Very similar. Of very similar. Similar, similar problems. It's probably a bit more like running a charter boat where you've got more, um, even though, you know, the marina has owners, but my... Our, our customers are more like owners, you know. You got except, and that's the the one difference between yachting where you've got one or two owners. I've got two hundred yeah. out here, and they two hundred want two two hundred different things. Yes, and what's acceptable to one is not acceptable to another, and you've got to sort of work around that. Uh, stand your ground, give a little, um, um, you know, find find the solution that sort of thing, rather than sort of talk yourself into a an impasse. Yes. Um, you've always got to sort of leave it. Uh, you know, and again, it's, it's the part of the growing up in Singapore, you learn the Chinese culture that you, you know you don't pack, back people into a corner. Yeah, people you back people into a corner and they'll strike. Um, you've always got to leave them a way out where they can keep keep face. Yes, and you know sometimes that involves a sort of a lot of you know tongue biting on my part just to sort of let them win the argument, even though I know they're wrong. <laughs> but but um, <laughs> it's about making them happy, uh, yes. not not my ego. Yes. Um, so it's about making them happy. So we do that. Is there anything about this particular <coughs> marina at Empire Marina Bombing Head that you think is very, very different to any other marina? I would say it's it's again it's it's the people. Um, the, the most certainly from new people that have come from other marinas, they sort of can't quite get over how friendly it is, and that's not even our friendliness. It's the the customers themselves on mm. on the arm, just you know. They, um, you know, they get quite possessive of their marina berth. If every now and again I've got to move them, they get very upset because oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I've got all my friends here. Mm. Sorry, your boat's too big for the berth or too small for the berth, and I've got a bigger one to put in there. Um, so I don't do it, on, you know, without a lot of thinking. But it always causes a lot of consternation when you do it. Yes. Um, so it's not something you do. But friendliness amongst the customers um, yeah. is sort of one thing I hear, and I think that's, I think that all just comes from the top, from when they arrive. To meet our receptionist, to meeting yourself, everyone's pretty friendly. Everyone's pretty welcoming, and I think as soon as they keep going to their boat, they've sort of got that in their in their head. So I think it's you know at um, you know we're not a club, yeah. You know we we are a business. Um, so there's that that line that you've got to got to have there. But so I think it's the, it's the friendliness. You know the location doesn't help. It doesn't hurt either. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty special place to be. Um, you know within the national park and. You know, look around us. It's 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 a pretty good place to work, and um, people like like to be here. And if they're coming down to their boat, um, that's sort of usually people's happy place. 
Yes. They don't want to come down here and say the staff are, you know, grumpy and not helpful and, and all that sort of thing. So, Yeah, I have heard our clients actually say this is my happy place, hmm. which is such a lovely thing to hear yeah. um, from the business that you own, the, the clients of. Well, I think that's boating in general. I know him going to go back to my father. Um, he was very different on the boat. Um, he was very different on the boat to where he wasn't to what he was at home. Yeah. Um, he was, you know, his voice was different. He's the way he would um, laugh about certain things that, you know, that was just being on the boat, yes. uh, being on on a, a boat. I could see it the way he would dress. You know, he was a suit and tie um, kind of guy with a briefcase. Um, but then on Saturday, it was you know daggy shorts and daggy shirt and. All covered in paint. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> come come home after it, you know, with all sort of anti fouling and that sort of thing all over his hands. But but I think that's what boats do. Yeah. Uh, anyway, they um, you know, let's face it, you know, they're they're uh, they're not an insignificant expense if you're not enjoying it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, what what are you doing it for? So that competitiveness that you have actually has probably helped this business a lot in terms of it being the top of its game, as it were, in the marinas. That's probably why I'm still here um, is because, you know, that's what we do. That's what Empire Marina does. Um, we don't sit still. You know, Marina of the Year a couple of times and then Hall of Fame and then, um, you know, as I say, with the anchor program, you know, platinum platinum anchorage and all, uh, anchors and all those sorts of things. So it, it keeps me interested that way that we're doing that to another Marina that's not so accredited, let's say, I'm surprised that they don't do the anchor programs and things like that because yeah. they they are aware of making you, of self-checking you, you know, um, okay. that your systems are up to date and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, um, John's just talking about the Marina Industries Association Gold Anchor Program, which is a it's kind of like the hotel system with um, four and five stars and so on and so forth. It's the marina version of that. So... Um, this marina is currently a platinum gold anchor marina, which mm. is um, the top of its game. So um, if you were talking to somebody about getting into being a marina manager, John, how would you um, suggest their pathway for that career? I, I don't know how they do it if they're not into boats. Yeah. I don't know quite how they get their head around what's required, what's needed and, and all that sort of thing. And there's a few, you know, well thought of and, you know, no disrespect to them, but they don't sail. Yeah. They don't have boats. They've not they've not grown up in, in boats. Um, so they don't really understand what the customer needs. Not really. I yeah. don't know how they can. How they can. Yeah. Um, what do you want? You know, you treat people like you want to be treated and I would sort of know what I want out of a marina, what I want a marina berth to do and how much power I want and, uh, different facilities and things like that, and I suppose we're a bit different here because of our attachment with the with the hard stand. So we've got a little bit of, you know, we need technical knowledge, such as mine, such as Collins, in the office to be able to do that. Yeah. To you know, it, we're all replaceable. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that um, no one can replace me, but of the guys that I know that are sort of at the same level, they've got no technical knowledge. Mm. Um, they couldn't. Um, they, they could manage the marina. But a lot of my day and a lot of my head goes also into the technical aspects of the of the hard stand, um, and if the person managing doesn't have that ability and experience, um, you're sort of winging it, and mm. that that the wheels will fall off that pretty quickly. Mm. So I think you know, as I say, to to answer your question, you sort of need to need to be about boats, 
um, I don't say to the, anything like the, the the level that I've done. The hundred thousand nautical miles that you've done. Nothing no. like that. Nothing like that. <laughs> Nothing like that. You've just got to enjoy it and see yeah. the good bits of it. Yeah. And I suppose have a few blow ups along the way that you get yourself out of trouble. You drag a few anchors. You you know um, run out of fuel. You all these sorts of things which will you know teach you certain skills and what you sort of, you know, want and, and all that sort of thing. But Well, I, I do remember once when I went aground because I went aground, which is... We all got aground. And that's exactly what John said when I came back. He said, if you, if you, ha- if you haven't gone aground, you haven't been boating. Yeah. We all got aground. <laughs> you know, just try and do it as soft as your pot, soft as possible. Yeah. And I did, so yeah, that was good. Yeah, no, we've, all, <laughs> we've all been aground. But, um, so that would be my biggest thing now to so say, whether you're a mechanic or, uh, you know, um, you, you don't have to even be a professional, but just even in your uh, recreational life, if you like boats and around boats and have been exposed to boats, I think that's that's, that's very a important. Good start. Yeah. 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 And what's the most challenging thing for you about um, running a marina? Unfortunately, at the moment, it's probably it's staff. Getting, getting good people. Yeah. Getting good people. Um, at Empire Marina, we've got another little imposter. There's no public transport available. Yes. Um, so you have to have a car to get here. Um, where we're kind of located, and again, for the people that are interested in boats, I don't say people in Hornsby and Karingai aren't interested in boats, but people from the central coast or the northern beaches grew up in that environment that I was telling you about, that they're you know, a lot more exposed to boating. Sure. So that's our main catchment. Is the northern beaches or the central coast? Yeah. Um, central coast, you know, it's an hour away, so you need a reliable car. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to be prepared for it. You know, two hours travel a day. Yeah. And you know, for some of the uh, lower paid jobs, you know, I've interviewed people, and you know, they're great. Um, and then I just happen to ask them the question about that car, and then they'll ask, "Well, what what number bus do I get?" <laughs> I <know>. <laughs> <laughs> There's no public transport. Sorry, so yeah. you, don't, you don't get the job. Yeah, this this location is such a beautiful location, um, but it does have its uh, its limitations on that basis of like you have to have a car to get here. So mm. or a boat. You can get here by boat. You can as get well, here by boat, which is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. But um, um, but that's the hardest part. And enough yeah. I, across all our tenants, uh, it's the same. Yeah, they just can't get people. There is there is a genuine shortage of employees in the boating industry right now isn't mm-hmm. there so in terms of your day-to-day what's your kind of most enjoyable part of running a marina um probably signing people up you know new new customers where you get to sort of you know um usually you know i'll probably or, or you know make getting them to make the decision to come here you know if they're leaving somewhere else um for whatever reason um They've moved home and they just want a marina closer to their new home or, uh, you know, there's lots of reasons. But it's, it's showcasing the place then. Um, yeah. Which I don't know about you, but I feel very proud mm. of this mm. marina. Yeah. And so when I'm showing people around it, I feel so incredibly proud of that. So it's it's easier, therefore, for you to actually convert clients because of that yeah. pride, isn't it? And that also dovetails into the you know the anchor programs that you know yeah. you've got set you've got standards of maintenance and you know you don't have broken light fittings and you know all your light globes work and um you know you, you, you've cleaned the place up there's not moss and you know every sort of cupboard and place you go to it's pretty tidy and yeah. you know you're sort of proud of it 
Mm. Um, anytime, you know, anyone asks you a question, you've got the, the right answer and you can go and show them, here, look, um, you know, yeah, I get proud of that too. Yeah. Um, but um, so that's probably the most in- enjoyable part is getting them and when they'll ring back and sort of say, yes, you know, yes, yes, we'll come. Yeah. Um, um, then, you know, you hand them off really to the receptionist and, and to, you know, the office manager, Michelle. Yeah. Um, he'll, I'll, I'll do the main sign up and explain to them the contractual obligations and, you know, pollution responses and, and all that sort of thing. But then they get to the, you know, the money side of, you know, setting up direct debits and yeah. electricity bills and all, all those sorts of things. That's Michelle, who's we talk, who we're talking to next, actually. Um, That's good. She'll, so, you know, you hand them off to them um, and the feedback I always get from them and the way our office is, I, I can hear it as well. Um, everyone's pretty happy. Um, you know, they, they, they like us straight away and, you know, mm. it's, it's first impressions. I'm a big mm. believer in first impressions. And I think I think the level of experience and professionalism that our team has that's what they I mean a lot of our clients rely on the level of knowledge that you have about boats to discuss problems with their boats with you and and so on and so forth I think that's a huge asset and important part of a marina manager's role to be honest Mm. it's a good place to be so it's you know it's it's sort of the other old adage too that if you love what you're doing it's almost not work yeah. Um, and I do love what I'm doing. I do love where I'm working. I do love who I work with. Um, well, that's good to hear because I'm one of those people. Mm. <laughs> well, it's what keeps you coming, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> lots of days I wake up and I think I just love a day off, you know, just to yeah. sick again, you know. Um, not that I couldn't or can't. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone's replaceable and the world keeps and the marina keeps running without me, don't worry. Yeah. Um, but I sort of think, well, I'd rather be at work. Fair enough. <laughs> Now, I have a question. I, I, I've thought about should I ask this question, but we can always edit it off. We can always cut it out. Yeah, we can always cut it out. Um, when I first started to work at the marina, mm-hmm. I very much felt that I needed to earn my stripes with you. And I think I have. And I wanted to know as a woman um, what I had done to earn those stripes. I suppose it's tenacity, you know, that's what I'll give you full credit for because, say, when you first came, um, you know, with brokerage, you know, you didn't know anything. No. Um, <laughs> and, again, it's a little bit, you know, you, you owned a boat. You had Porsche, I believe, at the time and that sort of thing. You'd had, yeah. you know, and your father, I think, you had yeah, boats when I you were young. And, you know, you had Castello and yeah. stuff. It wasn't that you were didn't know anything. Yeah. Um, but I suppose it's a bit like, you know, for for brokerage, um, you kind of got to have the answer for everything, and you know if you're struggling for answers or don't know or you know you say you're not it's not um, specific to you, but you see it on people's face when they just gee I don't know what what the answer to that is or I don't even know where to go to get, to get it. Um, so I suppose there was a, a, a bit of that where you know you couldn't open doors. You know I remember one boat I can't remember which boat it was, but. Um, you know, you know, I can't open the door, and you were sort of pulling it, and doing it, and foot up. But no, it's a slide. I had a chuckle. <laughs> I walked away having a chuckle, so sort of shaking my head. You're know, a long way to go. Um, but just even just the, you know, when you get to the point, and I'm sure you can do it now. You could look at a boat now, 
you know, five or however many years it is. Yeah. You can look at a boat now and kind of tell whether it would be petrol or diesel or shaft or stern drive or IPS, you know. You can, you, yes. When you don't have that, um, it would be like me going into uh, girls' getaways. Yes. I don't know anything about it. You know, yeah. I'd get there, I'd wing it, I'm smart enough, I'd do it. Yeah. Uh, year one I'd be pretty green and you'd be doing the same thing as me, just going, you know, John, the tails, don't go there. <laughs> um, after five years, that's where the tails go. Yeah. Um, so that was all. It was just, you know, but your tenacity that you've got through it. It's been 11 years. Is it? Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> really? Two, 2000, 2011 we started Empire Boat Sales, I think. So, t- what, 10 years? Yeah. Okay. That went quick, didn't it? But you've gone on there, and then as I say, your um, you know, as I say, you know, tenacity is, is you know what I'm going at because then you didn't just sort of uh, survive on what we were doing here in terms of boats, which were you know big, small, expensive, not so expensive, but then went off and to do to the Whitehaven thing to see your efforts and things there that you were doing. You know, I wouldn't have seen most of it. But the functions you were doing, and the you know cruises on the harbour, and you know the networking, and, and all that sort of thing, um, you know, it was, it was tenacity. Um, brokerage is a hard game. I don't know if you enjoyed it or not. But, um, it's a very hard game. It's a, yeah. it's, it's not the best part of the, not the fun part. No. Um, um, I don't know how Mike's done it for fifty years. I really don't. Um, it's it's a, it's a lot harder than everybody thinks it is. It's. Um, you know, people think selling boats is a very glamorous thing to do, but it's actually it's actually quite tough. And it has its really emotional moments, I found, as well, because you're working between two people that are in an emotional moment of buying a boat or selling a boat. So you're dealing with those emotions of those owners and prospective owners, um, as well as um, having to be very ethical in terms of getting the right price for the vendor um, but also achieving a fair price for the purchaser. Mm-hmm. So it's actually it's actually very, very intense. I I lost a lot of sleep I'm when sure. I was selling I'm boats. Sure. Yeah. And the other part is that especially with boats, everyone's an expert. Mm. They're all an yes. expert. And you know, yeah. if they're meeting you and um, you know, at the stage when you were sort of learning, um, you know, they they pick your experience. Straight away, yes. You know, if, if the guys are sort of a discerning owner and had boats before, they you know, they can tell a mile away. Yeah. Um, who knows what they're talking about? Yeah. Um, and you know that that would be very hard. You know. Yeah. Um, you and, know. and and I used to be very honest about that. If they asked me a question, I didn't know the answer to. Mm. So I don't know the answer to that, but I'll find out for you. Mm-hmm. And I'd go, and then I'd come to you, or I'd go to Wally, our mechanic, or. Um, the electrician or whoever that expertise was, I'd go to them and say, what is this, why, and why is it doing this? Mm-hmm. And they'd explain it to me and then I'd relay it back to the client. Um, and so I wasn't, um, you know, I didn't use BS to cover myself. No. I just, I just um, told them exactly what I knew and what I didn't yeah. know. And what's, what was interesting by, you know, sort of five, six, seven years in, um, I'd have moments like... Uh, a guy, I'd take a boat guy around the boat. I'd explain everything, and and he'd say to me something like, "I don't, I don't mean to be sexist, but it's it's really nice to have a woman that knows so much about boats." And it was, yeah. it, they they kind of made an assumption that as a woman I wouldn't, but, um, and that changed. So it was nice to see that respect. 
come forward when they did realise that they did actually know what I was talking about. Did you ever find you needed balance with, you know, because I know you and, as I say, you're you know, vivacious, gregarious and, and all that sort of thing, that the wives would have a problem with be, them becoming friends with you, friendly with you while you're doing the deal? Oh, the, I always used to focus on the woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if a couple came together, I would always focus on the woman because the woman is always the decision maker and buying a boat anyway. That's my point. If they're coming as a couple, then the woman is absolutely the decision maker in that process. So um, I would always focus on the woman and talk to her um, as much as I possibly could and and obviously then show her around the boat from her mindset of what she wanted to see in that boat and what she would see as... Uh, the good things that she wanted to, to know about. Yeah, typically they're not interested in the engines or propulsion system or anchor windlass or that sort of thing. It's you no. know, bathrooms, galley, curtains. How much soft champagne furnishings. can I fit in the fridge? Soft furnishings. Yeah. And, you know, let's face it, they're, they're the good bits of the boat. They're the yeah. reason you, you buy or um, buy or don't buy that, that boat. And, yeah. um, and as you say, I think you're dead right. For, I haven't done a lot of, lot of brokerage, but I've done a bit. If if um, the wife doesn't like it, you're not getting it. No. Um, no matter no. how good the engine is and how cheap it is and, you know, the right colour, but if she didn't like it, and I could always used to be able to tell is uh, Baldy Arms. Oh, the, yeah, you can read a woman getting onto a boat yeah. very easily. If she, and if you interested. actually observe that. If you observe you that can, and if she folds her arms and starts looking out the back of the boat, yes, not happening. Yeah, and I would actually say boat. to the guy, on that boat. I'm just going to say this, but... I don't think there's any point in looking any further in this boat because your wife doesn't like it. And he'd say, oh, really? And she'd say, yeah, she's spot on. Let's go and look at another one. Yeah, yeah. And it can be something as, you know, just the cushions. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. It's that or it's got a smell about it that just, you know, the boat needs to be opened up for a minute and kind of go. But, no, I've seen that a lot, yes. uh, you know, watching over the years. So it's just, you know, once the arms are folded and they're staring out the back into space, <laughs> that boat ain't happening. Exactly. <laughs> I'll go and buy something else. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. Yeah. Marina management's my my game. So there we have it, John Lawler, our Marina director. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, pleasure. It's, um, it's been, been fun. a delight talking to you. I-